So if you would, this morning we are continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we are going to look at verses 1 through 16. So 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. You see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you'll see Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you're using one of the blue provided Bibles that are near you, that's going to be on page 955. 955. The big number there is going to be the chapter. You'll see a big seven. And the little numbers next to the words, those are verses. And if you don't own a Bible um, and you see a blue one near you, please just consider that our church's gift to you. Please keep it, uh, read it, mark it up, meditate on it. But we are in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. And we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've gone through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And, and one of the beautiful things about what we do, we do con- consecutive expository preaching. And so when we get to cultural hot topic passages like the one today, we can't just skip it because then the whole congregation would be like, hey, what are you doing there? We recognize that you went through every other verse and then you just happened to skip this one. That seems a little convenient. And so we are now here and we get to talk about it. Uh, But let me read it, and then we will jump in. Starting in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift that it is for us to be able to look at and study 
your self-revelation of yourself. Lord, we are grateful that you have kindly condescended down to us and given us in written form instruction, guidance. We thank you that your word is sufficient for all aspects of life and godliness. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have provided us with the space to meet here. We thank you for those who are here. God, we do pray that you would use our time together to build up the saints. We pray that those who may not be believers here would hear the gospel perhaps for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time, but perhaps today they understand it for the first time and receive it with faith. Lord, we think of those who are unable to gather this morning, particularly those in Florida in the wake of Hurricane Ian. Lord, we do pray for them. We pray that you would continue to be with those communities as they rebuild. Thank you for the good work that sister Southern Baptist churches are doing through Send Relief. God, we pray that we would rejoice in that, but we would also rejoice in the work that other churches and other organizations are doing. We pray, God, that you would bring about a quick recovery of those communities. Lord, we pray for the Heron family, members here who are now moving back to Virginia. God, we ask that you would be with Elijah, Morgan, Asher, Zephaniah, Judah, as they head back to Virginia. Lord, meet all their needs, provide We pray particularly that you provide them with a gospel-centered church that they can get plugged into. Thank you for the joy it has been to have them here. Lord, we pray as we look at this passage on marriage and we look at this passage on those who are married and those who are unmarried, that you would be with the marriages here in this room. That we as a people would submit our understanding of marriage to you. Lord, for those who are unmarried, Lord, that they would see the gift that it is. Lord, you've given us gifts, different stages. Help us to use the gifts that you've given us, whether that is marriage or being unmarried, to glorify you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm glad that Jonathan um, earlier mentioned Martin Luther. As we get closer and closer to Reformation Day, uh, I think it's only appropriate to quote Martin Luther as we open up this, um, this sermon. And for those who don't know, Martin Luther is the, the monk who kicked off the Protestant Reformation in 1517. On October 31st, 1517, he nailed his 95 theses, the 95 annoyances, so to speak, that he had of the Roman Catholic Church, and he nailed them to the church doors in Wittenberg. And Martin Luther, in talking about marriage, said that there is no estate to which Satan is more opposed than marriage. There is no estate to which Satan is more opposed as to marriage. And so you can see, I mean, even in our own culture, that Satan has attacked marriage in every way, every opportunity that he can. They say about 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And they say about in 2022 that the expected divorce rate is going to be around 44.2%. They say that researchers have estimated that approximately 41% of first-time marriages end in divorce. And so you can see that Martin Luther has said that Satan hates marriage. You can see that he's done a pretty good job of attacking it. And it's infiltrated its way through culture and it's even made its way into the church. So as a people who submit ourselves to the word of God, we want to know, does God's word say anything about marriage? And it would seem, as we just read, that it does. And it speaks to marriage in more places than just here. But today we are in 1 Corinthians 7, so we're going to focus in on what God's word says in these passages. 
And so now the main point of 1 Corinthians 7, so I'm not talking about verses 1 through 16, which we're in, but the whole chapter is that we are to glorify God in whatever stage he has placed us in. We're to glorify God in whatever life stage he has placed us in. Now, the main point of these first 16 verses are kind of a subcategory of that. And it's whether you're married or unmarried, glorify God in the life stage that he has placed you in. So married or unmarried, glorify God in that life stage. So some background, if you're joining us this morning, we kind of talked about the, this Corinthian letter. We've said that this is the second letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth. There's essentially a zero Corinthians earlier. And so Paul, while he's in Ephesus, wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. Now, this is a church that Paul founded. So there previously wasn't a church. Paul visited, he shared the gospel, and a church was birthed. Believers, people came to know Christ, and so a church was established. And it's incredible that a church was established there because Corinth is known as a very metropolitan, very cosmopolitan type city. It was in a prime trade route. And so there was a lot of religious practices. There was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of sexual immorality, as we've covered in the previous chapters, and we'll even touch here. It's essentially, um, if you could think of a modern-day example of a, a large melting pot, think of like New York City. Um, that's kind of how the city of Corinth was. And so what Paul has done is he wrote that zero Corinthians earlier. And the church in Corinth responded. They wrote back to him with some questions from his initial letter. Now, we don't have his initial letter. We don't have their response. But we can kind of put together what their response was based off of what Paul says in this letter. And so the first six verses, Paul lets them know that, hey, I'm addressing some of the issues that I heard from a report from Chloe's people. We see that in chapter 1, verse 11. And now that we get into uh, chapter 7 here, he opens it by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So he says, all right, Corinthian church, you wrote me. Now I'm going to answer some of your questions. Now leading up to this, the issues that um, we've covered were in the first four chapters, we saw unbiblical divisions within the church. And then in chapter 5, we saw the Corinthians tolerating egregious sin. And they were proud of it. Paul says, don't, don't tolerate egregious sin. Call that brother to repentance. Then we saw in chapter 6 that there were lawsuits within the church. Believers were taking believers to the secular courts and suing each other. And also in chapter 6, we saw them justifying sexual sin. And then in chapter 7, what we see now, we see confusion around marriage and singleness. And so the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians, as we continue to march through it, is that we would be unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we unpack that theme, each time we go through a new passage here, we see some of the ways that Paul is instructing that. And so in this chapter, we see Paul provide instruction, provide very practical instruction. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see four points here. He provides that instruction for the married for the unmarried, for Christians married to Christians, and for Christians married to non-Christians. So he provides practical instruction for the married, for the unmarried, for Christians married to Christians, and for Christians married to non-Christians. And there is a lot in these verses here. So I am certainly not going to be able to unpack it to the degree that I would like to in a reasonable amount of time. But if you do have any questions afterward, please, try to say this each time, but please do feel welcome to ask. So in these first seven verses, we see Paul 
giving instruction for the married. So he finally has acknowledged the fact that the Corinthians have written him a letter asking some questions. You can imagine as, the, as this letter gets to Corinth and they're reading it to the whole church and he's addressing this report that he got from Chloe's people, they're probably like, at what point are you going to address the questions that we had? We, we wrote to you, we are really confused about these things, we would like to know some instruction here. And so he does, he finally acknowledges it, and he addresses the first thing, he address, the first thing that he addresses to them is something that they wrote. They had concluded, whether it was through a conclusion, they're saying this is a statement, or whether it's a question that they had. In the original manuscripts, there's not uh, punctuation, so we don't know if there's a question mark at the end or if there's a period making a statement. But they came to the conclusion that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so now Paul wants to address that. John MacArthur commenting on this, providing some uh, context, he said, some had the notion that because of all the sexual sin and marital confusion, that it would just be better to be single, even more spiritual, to be celibate. So, hey, there's, there's all kinds of sexual sin, like there's all kinds of stuff that's going on. You know what, it's just better if we're single and we're celibate. That's the, the highest degree of sanctification, at least in the Corinthians' mind. Essentially, hey, saying that if speeding is bad, I'm just not going to own a car. You know what, I'm just not going to own a car. So if sexual relations are bad, I'm just, I'm just not going to be married at all. I'm going to be, be single and, and be celibate. And Paul says, no. Hold on. Let me, let me help you understand what it is that I was writing to you. So he says, some sexual relations are in fact immoral. Notice in verse 1, there's that phrase, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Then he transitions in verse 2 to because of the temptation to sexual immorality. So he moves from sexual relations to sexual immorality. It says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So there's, there's a good thing here that we don't want to read too quickly over. Is that each man has his own wife and each woman has her own husband. This is not a shared wife, not a shared husband. This is a one man, one woman, monogamous relationship. It's the goodness of God's design with marriage. So the question that we have to ask is, does that mean that marriage is just God's way of saying, oh, well, you guys can't control yourself, so I'll give you marriage so that you can tame your, sin- your sinful sexual desires? Well, that's not, we, that can't be the case, because in Genesis 1, before sin ever entered the world, God gave a creation mandate. He said, be fruitful and multiply. And he said that prior to sin entering the world. So the first marriage took place before sin entered, and so therefore mar- marriage can't just be this consensus that God has given, oh, you guys can't control yourself, so therefore I'll, I'll give you marriage. That's not the case. But Paul is drawing a clear line here between what is sexual relations and what is sexual immorality. And he says that because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each wife or each woman should have her own husband. So therefore, the sexual relations are a good and wonderful thing within the confines of marriage. Anything outside of that, outside of that line, is called sexual immorality. One commentator said that marriage is not a concession to our sinfulness. Rather, marriage is a provision for our holiness. It's a tool that God uses to grow us into the image of Christ. And so in verse 3, we see, we see Paul talk about giving 
husbands giving to their wives their conjugal rights. Now that, that term conjugal rights just means the physical relationship that takes place within marriage. He's saying don't abstain from it. You guys thought that sexual relations and singleness are the highest good, and so they were not engaging in that. He says, no, 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 you're, you're married. Enjoy the good gift of marriage and the physical aspect that comes through that. He says, in fact, if you do abstain, it could lead to greater temptation. He says, don't, don't give Satan room to tempt you further. In fact, God is glorified when his people enjoy his good gifts in the parameters that he has designed. And further, it just allows, it allows us to fulfill the creation mandate that we saw in Genesis 1.28, to be fruitful and multiply and to exercise dominion over creation. One of the ways that we exercise dominion over creation is not only by acting like followers of Christ, but also by creating more followers of Christ. So if possible, create more followers of Christ so that, you can exercise, so that we can, as a people, can exercise dominion over God's creation. Then in verse 4, it says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So there's this authority thing that we see here that could bring up some, some questions. And essentially what Paul is getting at is that in marriage, the two become one. They come together. And so therefore, what you do with your body doesn't impact only you. It also impacts your spouse. What your spouse does with his or her body impacts you. And so therefore there's this mutual authority that takes place within the marriage covenant. It's not, I want to be clear, it is not permission to exercise that authority in an abusive way. If you find yourself in an abusive relationship, I would very much so encourage you to talk to a pastor, to talk to somebody that you trust. Do not feel like you need to consistently engage in an abusive relationship. We'll get into more details with that, but I just want to clarify that when we talk about authority over the body, that's not permission for exercising abusive authority. We're to love our spouse in the way that Christ has loved the church in a sacrificial way. And so, husbands, live in an understanding way with your spouse, with your wife. Wives, live in an understanding way with your husbands. Use your body to help your spouse. Paul says, don't abstain from the good gift of sexual relations. Use your body to to help your spouse so that you guys would not be further tempted. He does provide some form of concession. He says in verse 6, as a concession, not a command, I say this. And he's referring to verse 5, where he says, do not deprive one another. But if you do, he lays out three qualifications. There are three qualifications for withholding or taking some time. And he says these three things. He says, one, it should be by agreement. It shouldn't just be one person saying, hey, you know what? I'm I'm just going to go off and I'm going to do my own thing, kind of focus on the Lord. He says, no, it should be by agreement. Second, it should be for a limited time. And third, it should be for greater devotion to prayer. And if any of those three qualifications are lacking, he says that this actually gives Satan room to tempt our lack of self-control. So, as far as we are able, we should enjoy the good gift within the confines of marriage. Paul says, I wish all that were as I myself am. Paul was single. He says, I, w- I wish everybody could, could go and, and be single because, and so they wouldn't be dominated by these desires. Because like, it offers, he says later in the chapter, it offers greater...
devotion to Christ, that your interests are undivided. But he says, I, I understand that some have the gift of singleness and some do not. He says, each has his own gift from God. Some are called to marriage, and that is a good gift. Some, even in this room, are called to singleness, and that is a good gift. It's a wonderful thing. So if you're married, this is the, the point of the first seven verses there, if you're married, maintain those sexual relations. The desire for sexual relations is a good thing, but it's meant to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. If you're not married, but you're pursuing marriage, see in verse 2, that God calls any sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant immoral. So the question isn't how far can we go before it becomes immoral. The question is, is there any sexual activity at all? Based off of verse 2. So as followers of Jesus, even in your dating relationships, draw boundaries where God has drawn boundaries, not where society has drawn them. And then, if you're married and you're able, enjoy God's good gift within the parameters that he has provided. So that's his instruction for the married. And now we see him provide some instruction for the unmarried. And this is very straightforward and simple instruction. This chapter, as I was thinking through applications, and we'll provide some as we go through it, but Paul provides them just right, right there in the text. So as we go through this, Paul is very simple and straightforward here. And so we see in verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and the widows, so whether you've never been married or whether you were married and you have lost your spouse, he says, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. So Paul reiterates here, singleness is a good gift. It permits undivided devotion to Christ, whereas marriage brings additional concerns. You're concerned about your spouse. You're concerned about your children. You're concerned about in-laws. There are activities and events that I go to that I would rather not go to because I love my in-laws and my interests are divided. And anyone in here who's married could probably attest to some similar things. And I love my in-laws. They're wonderful. Paul gets at this even more so in, in verses 32 through 34, which we'll touch on in subsequent weeks. weeks. But verse 9, he says, if they cannot exercise self-control, he says, it's good to be single. Say, like, I wish you guys could be single as I am. He says, if you're now unmarried, whether because you've never been married or because you're widowed, he said, it's good to be single. Pursue that. He says, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, that, that burning with passion is a strong desire. So if you have a strong desire toward marriage and the physical benefits of marriage, then it is good to pursue marriage. You're not pursuing a second-class concession. Oh, because you can't exercise self-control, you pursue marriage. Okay, you're not as holy as those who can exercise self-control. That's not the case. God says that if you pursue, if you desire, if you have strong desires for marriage and the physical benefits of marriage, then the faithful thing is to pursue marriage. He says, if you can exercise self-control, then the faithful thing for you is to pursue singleness. He says, if you're single, you're free to marry. If you're widowed, you're free to remarry. If you have that strong desire, it, marriage is God's good gift to you. So if you're unmarried, the point that he's getting at here is to stay, it's good to stay unmarried. But if you long for marriage, if you long for the physical benefits of marriage, then get married. Pursue it. 
So if you are unmarried, never married, or you're widowed, Paul describes two camps here. He says that camp number one is those who have strong sexual desires. He says, for you, it's better for you to pursue it. Pursue marriage. Don't put yourself under ongoing temptation. If you are engaged, if you are planning on getting engaged, my encouragement to every couple who enters into engagement is to make it a short engagement. You guys have come to the understanding that you guys are going to spend the rest of your lives together, that it's you who are going to enjoy these physical benefits with. Once you get engaged, that temptation level goes up. I would encourage you, have a short engagement. Camp number two is for those who don't have strong sexual desires. And Paul says to them, he says, I'm with you. He says, it's good to remain single. He said, you can use it to serve Christ with undivided devotion. You can use the freedom in your schedule for study, for prayer, for focused discipleship. You can use the freedom in your schedule to be a blessing to others, whereas others may not have the freedom in their schedule to do that. And don't overlook the fact that both Jesus and Paul were single. God used them immensely. It's not a second-class status within the church. So he says, however, he says, pursue marriage if you long. If you don't, pursue singleness. However, even though it's good, as Paul says, to be unmarried, that does not give permission to those who are married to say, hey, it's good to be unmarried, so therefore I need to get out. I need to get out of my marriage. And that's what was actually happening with some of these Corinthians. If you look at verses 10 through 11, we see Paul now give instruction for Christians married to Christians. He said, to the married, I give this charge. He says, not I, but the Lord. Now, that's, a, that's kind of a, a strange phrase. And he says it again later in verse 12, something similar, but it's turned, and we'll talk about it. But when he says, not I, but the Lord, he's just quoting Jesus' ministry. He's saying, hey, look, this isn't what I said. You guys should already know this. This is what Jesus has said. And so he, he's referring to Matthew 19. If you turn there, Matthew 19, verses 8 through 9 is what we're going to be looking at. See, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, not I, but the Lord. He's referring to the Lord Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce. He said to them, this is Jesus speaking, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So see Jesus here saying that he is against divorce. So sexual immorality, sexual activity outside of the marriage, that, that is the exception to the rule. And so when Paul says the wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife, he's saying, hey look, this wasn't inspired teaching from me. The Lord Jesus already talked about this. And so, yes, it's in, it's in the scripture, so we say it is inspired. However, Paul's saying, hey, you guys heard this before from the Lord Jesus. He said that he's against divorce. So when I say wives don't separate from your husbands and husbands don't divorce your wives, this is a new teaching for you. He's quoting Christ. He says wives don't separate. That word there, that Greek word, is used in Matthew 19. So if you're still there, you can see in verse 6, where he reads, so they are no longer two, 
but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Greek word karidzo, let not man karidzo. So he's saying, wives, don't separate. Husbands, don't divorce. Now, there were Corinthian Christians who were married who thought it would be more faithful now to be unmarried because of all the benefits that we said earlier about undivided devotion and uh, the Corinthians being confused, thinking that sexual relations were just inherently bad. So they thought, hey, if, if sexual relations are bad and if being married divides my attention, then it would just be more faithful. I'd be a more faithful Christian if I wasn't married. So I need to, I need to loose myself of this spouse. And so some ended up separating and some ended up divorcing without biblical grounds. And Paul talks to them. Verse 11. He says, or excuse me, at the end of verse 10, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, because some had, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. He's saying you can't neglect the covenant that you have made with this individual. Be faithful in the stage that God has placed you in. You were previously not a Christian, and now you are, and you, you guys are in this stage. You're both wanting to pursue Christ faithfully. Don't think that you have to be divorced and single so you can do that un, with undivided attention. He said, pursue Christ together. Honor the covenant that you have made with this person. And it's reflective of the good news that we have received in Christ. If you think about it, God himself had grounds to divorce and to separate himself from his people. We have been unfaithful in countless ways. Even this week, we can think of ways where we have been unfaithful to the Lord. However, in his kindness, rather than pursue divorce or separation from his people, he sought a way for reconciliation. And he provided Christ, who lived the life that we should have lived, who lived a perfectly righteous life, and then took the penalty for all those who placed their faith on him. We receive his righteousness. He takes our sinfulness. So what Paul is getting at with this, these two verses is that divorce for Christians is not an option. Do not pursue divorce. The Lord Jesus offered one exception, which was sexual immorality. And we'll talk about another one here as we move forward. But faithfulness and devotion to Christ are not dependent on your marital status. If you're married, stay married. Seek reconciliation if you're considering divorce. Seek reconciliation, not an exit strategy. Marriage is meant to be, I'm terrible at cooking. Okay, this is just, I can make ramen, I can make peanut butter and jelly, and I can make cereal. So that's kind of the extent of my cooking ability. But I do know this about pressure cookers, right? Marriage is meant to be like a pressure cooker. If you open up a pressure cooker without using the release valve, it could be disastrous, okay? The release valve, the relief from all that pressure in marriage is reconciliation. If you try to flip the lid off a of marriage and say, I'm done, and get out of here, it could be disastrous for you spiritually. It could be disastrous for family. It could be disastrous for those who are near you. I would encourage you, seek reconciliation if possible. If you're married, know that your spouse isn't holding you back. Rather, he or she is God's good gift to you. God's instrument for sanctifying you. Not a thorn in your side, but a chisel for sanctification. So Paul now turns to Christians married to non-Christians. He says this. He says, to the rest, 
I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So we talked about that phrase earlier where he says, not I, but the Lord. Now he says, I, not the Lord. And so it doesn't mean that this isn't inspired. It doesn't mean that this isn't God's teaching. This simply means that the Lord Jesus didn't touch on what Paul is about to say. Paul, this, this is still inspired. This is still the word of God. We see a similar instance in verse 25 where Paul says something along those lines as well. But Paul is now, inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving them some instruction. He's addressing Christians who are married to non-Christians. So previously they were two non-Christians and then one of them, the husband or the wife, came to faith. They were converted. And so now Paul is addressing them. Saying, hey, for you Christians who are married to a non-Christian, who are married to an unbeliever, if that unbeliever consents to live with you, don't seek divorce. Some Christians were abandoned by their unbelieving spouses. Some stayed. And so Paul addresses both of these circumstances. He says, now for those with unbelieving spouses, if your spouse agrees to live with you, stay in the marriage. Stay. Don't be the one to seek divorce. Be an instrument for sanctification. The Lord, who knows, the Lord may use you to bring your unbelieving spouse to faith. And praise God for using his people in unexpected ways. But if your spouse leaves you, it says in verse 15, you're free. So he provides a second ground, biblical ground for divorce. Jesus had the first one in Matthew 19, sexual immorality outside of the covenant of marriage. And the second one, Paul says, is if your unbelieving spouse just abandons you, just leaves you, you're free. Don't feel like you've failed if you can't convince that spouse to stay. Don't feel like God is displeased with you. The unbeliever has acted like an unbeliever and wants nothing to do with light. What does darkness have to do with light? And so don't take responsibility feeling like you have failed in some way, but he says you're free. Now, when you see these two instances, I want to point out that these are grounds for divorce, but they're not requirements for divorce. So should these things take place, it doesn't mean that you are required to get a divorce, but you have grounds. So I said earlier, we talked about abusive situations, and so the natural question is, what about an abusive marriage? I don't see that. I see sexual morality outside of the marriage covenant, and I see abandonment. What if the spouse hasn't abandoned, still agrees to live with me, but they're physically abusive? For that, I would encourage you, I mean highly, highly encourage you, talk to a pastor. Talk to a trusted brother or sister. Do not walk that road alone. I would encourage you that, if, especially if it's physical abuse, get out of the house. That doesn't mean that you're pursuing divorce, but you're, you need to seek safety. But then seek counsel immediately. Do not walk down that road by yourself. You are here with a community of believers. Talk with other brothers and sisters who are ready and willing to help you through that. That's as much as I can say there. If you want to talk about it more off of the, offline, we can absolutely do that. However, as we're looking at this passage, there are two verses that seem a little quirky. We've already talked about some of them, but verse 14 and verse 16. So let's address these. These are difficulties. So verse 14 says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. 
Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So the Corinthians were concerned, right? They were concerned that now, now, that we're, now that I'm a believer, I am now cleansed by the blood of Christ. But my spouse is not a believer, so therefore not cleansed by the blood of Christ, therefore unclean. And even earlier in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 15, Paul was talking about how we shouldn't join what is clean to what is unclean. And so they're understandably a little confused. Should we now, I mean, marriage joins us together in covenant and joins us together physically with what spiritually is, is unclean. And so they'd say, hey, we don't want to do that. We're the body of Christ, so therefore we need to separate. Paul says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Your salvation is not compromised. That's what they were concerned about. They're worried about being defiled by the unclean. He says, look, your salvation is not compromised. He said, your marriage is not compromised. He says, your children are not compromised. They're worried that maybe because unclean and clean, that maybe you'd be a mudblood type of child. Where they're, they're, that's for you Harry Potter fans. That's, they were concerned that this child would not be clean. Paul says, no, that's not the case. He says, your children are holy. Your spouse, your marriage is holy. It's legitimate. They're worried that being united to a non-believer would compromise the salvation of the believer. Paul says, no, that's not the case. In fact, he says one Christian has a sanctifying effect on the entire household. He says your entire household will benefit from it. That word holy could be translated as sanctified. I think it's actually better to translate it as sanctified, but the ESV chose not to. Take it up with them. But he, but he says that you have a sanctifying presence on your entire family just by being a follower of Christ. Some of you here have, have experienced this. Maybe mom was a believer and dad wasn't, and you were exposed to things of the Lord that you otherwise never would have been, or vice versa. Or maybe it was grandma or grandpa. Somebody had a large impact on you, spiritually speaking, because of their, them being a Christian within your family. For me, it was my grandfather. My grandfather's a firm follower of Jesus. And he just tried to invest in me every time he had the opportunity to. And I had wonderful parents, but they were not as serious about it as my grandfather was. So because of my grandfather's influence, it affected me. It's now affected our children. And just consider the way that God can use you in your family, even if you're the lone Christian. Even if you're the only one. Don't underestimate the impact your faithfulness has on your family and those around you. Now, what that does not mean, when we read this passage, it doesn't mean that your family is suddenly considered a believer. So it says the children are holy. It doesn't mean we're going to give them the signs of being believers. Our pedo baptist friends would disagree with us. But we'd say if, if you're going to baptize the children who aren't making a profession of faith, then you should also baptize the spouse who's not making a profession of faith because the same phrase is used in that verse. So it doesn't mean that they're made Christian but it does mean that there's a sanctifying effect that could lead to salvation, which we see in verse 16. It's not guaranteed. But he says, look, how do you know whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, that can be read positively, but I think it's actually what Paul's getting at. He's reading it negatively. He says you're free in verse 15. God has called you to peace. But then he says, look, you don't know if you're going to save your husband. 
You don't know if you're going to save your wife. Do not feel like their salvation is your responsibility. Yes, share the gospel. Yes, be a faithful brother. Be a faithful sister. Show with your actions the impact that the Lord has had in your life and pray that that would take root and effect in the life of your unbelieving spouse. Don't underestimate the work that God can do. But if that individual chooses to leave, you're at peace. You don't know if you were going to save them. You don't know if your actions were going to lead to their salvation. So as long as it's up to you, Paul's getting at, as long as it's up to you, stay married. Christian, God hates divorce. See that in Malachi 2. God hates divorce. We should too. We should despise it. As long as it's up to us, divorce should not be an option. Now, Paul does provide three grounds for remarriage. We already touched on some of them, but the first is if the other spouse has died. Until death do us part. The, the covenant of marriage has, a spouse has died, covenant of marriage has been broken now. So you are free to remarry. The other we see from Jesus in Matthew 19, because the other spouse committed adultery. And the third is because the unbelieving spouse abandoned the believing spouse, which we just covered here in verse 15. Now that's, that's my understanding of the text. There, there are other brothers and sisters who would disagree with that. There are other churches who would preach against that. And so as far as I understand the text here, that is what I'm going to put before you. So if you'd like to talk more about it, we, we certainly can. But maybe you're here and you've realized that you've initiated divorce without biblical grounds. If possible, what Paul's getting at, if possible, seek reconciliation. Do what you can to be reconciled. But if not possible, confess your sin to God and trust in the mercy and grace that is found in Jesus Christ. There is no sin that faith in Christ cannot cover. He has paid it all. Please, do not think that if you've experienced divorce in unbiblical grounds, maybe you pursued it, that you are now outside of God's grace. God does hate divorce. We should too. And part of the reason why God hates divorce is because marriage is a reflection of the gospel. We see this in Matthew 5. And if you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, then you've heard me talk about this. So if you've already heard it, you're going to hear it again. But look, think about the marriage ceremony. Toward the front, just waiting, is the groom. He has sought his bride. He has won her over. He's convinced her to marry him. And he just waits. And then she enters in, in a spotless, white dress. Vows are made. I commit myself to you. They each say, through good and bad, I'll be faithful to you. I will never forsake you. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. And then symbols are shared with rings. She takes his name. Then they celebrate with a meal. In the same way, Christ, the, the bridegroom, has pursued his bride, the church. And he has won her over. He has lived the perfect life necessary for reconciliation back to God. And now vows are made. Christ commits himself to us, and we commit ourselves to him. He promises us to never leave us or forsake us, and we promise him we'll forsake all other gods. 
We will not pursue any other God. We are submitting ourselves to you alone. That's why we call him Lord. It means master. All he has becomes ours. His righteousness, his spirit, his inheritance, and all we have is his. Our sin, our brokenness, and our past. And then we take his name. We are seen as Christ. When God looks down on us, he sees us in Christ. And then we celebrate with a meal, the Lord's Supper. If you are in Christ, this is your reality. Whether you are married or unmarried, glorify God in the stage that he has placed you and be satisfied in Christ, our eternal bridegroom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for addressing difficult topics in your word, not leaving us without instruction. Thank you for your grace and your mercy for those of us who, looking at this passage, have found ourselves to be on the wrong side of it. Thank you for the mercy and the grace that you extend through Christ. Lord, we pray that we would submit our marriages to you. We pray that we would seek reconciliation. We pray that for those who are unmarried, or that they would be content in Christ. We would not view that as a second-class position. Lord, we are grateful that you promise us that for all eternity, we will not be left without a spouse. But we have been given Christ, our great bridegroom. Thank you for him. We pray that as we go from here, we would faithfully pursue Christ. We tell others the good news that is found in him. We pray that Christ would be glorified in us as we go about this week. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.